Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Nā mihi nui and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. This week, we are all about the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Prizes, which have just been announced. Congratulations to the winners of the five awards, who between them have won a million dollars in prize money. Later on in the show, we'll meet the future scientist and the science communicator. But first up, the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Prize worth half a million dollars has gone to a team at ESR, the Institute of Environmental Science and Research, for a crime-busting software package called StarMix. I'm off to ESR in Auckland to find out more. So my name is Joe Bright and I'm a forensic scientist working within the StarMix team. And this is your team and it's a team full of people sitting at computers? This is my team and yes, we, we sit at computers all day. Hi everybody. Hi. Well there's quite a few of you. How many are working on the team? Uh, the wider team, there are 16 of us. And so everybody in this room works on developing the software? There's a variety of, of roles, so we obviously develop the software, but we also support the use of the software, and we train users to be able to use the software. Now, in a nutshell, what does the software do? The software is used to interpret forensic DNA profiles. It's used to solve crime, basically. Now, can we just sort of step sideways and perhaps go and have a look at the lab where some of the forensic stuff that people who watch TV crime shows might think it all happens and then work our way back to what you actually do? Let's do that. So I can take you into the laboratory and show you what happens when we receive an exhibit. And before we do that, we're going to have to ask that you provide a DNA sample. Stand by, listeners. My DNA sample is a simple cheek swab. It'll be used to check against any potential contamination in the lab. So this is one of our research laboratories, and because it's a working laboratory, we're going to have to follow the same rules as we would in a caseworking laboratory. So we will have to get gowned up, which includes gloves and a hairnet, just to avoid any uh, DNA. Uh, we want to minimise the potential for contamination as much as possible. So gown, hairnet, safety glasses and gloves to cover me and my sound kit. Right, fully gowned up, lead the way. Me is one of our senior scientists who uh, more recently has spent some time in the laboratories. So over the years, I imagine, our ability to find DNA has improved so that we can get it from smaller and smaller samples. So that's correct. So the equipment we use and the chemistry that we use has become more and more sensitive over the last 20 years, which means that we can get DNA profiles from more and more minute amounts of DNA, uh, which means that we have to be a lot more careful now with respect to contamination, but it also has had a flow-on effect to how we interpret those DNA profiles. 
So back in the old days, when, as you say, we used to get DNA profiles from large samples, so traditionally blood and semen, they would be very easy profiles to interpret. Uh, typically, they would be only from one or two individuals. Uh, if it was a sexual assault, for example, you, you might see DNA from two, two individuals, uh, the victim and the offender. Uh, but moving towards these trace amounts of DNA, you can see uh, profiles that have uh, contributors from, from anything from one to four or five people. So these DNA profiles, these mixed DNA profiles, are more and more complex. And that's what Starmix has been designed for, to help us interpret those more complex DNA profiles. So Ming, what generally happens in a lab like this? So everything is set up, the labs are cleaned and sterile and decontaminated before you start the work. And um, for example, if we're going to prepare an exhibit, um, you would have the exhibit item displayed onto the bench and also some nylon swabs that we use to collect the biological sample or the stains from. And then from there, we would actually remove the swab heads and collect them into microcentrifuge tubes for then to proceed with the relevant extraction and or other um, laboratory processes. What happens to it then? It goes through a series of chemical reactions and processes. We typically use a commercially available um, DNA extraction kit then we proceed to the second phase, which is firstly to quantify the amount of DNA present in the sample, and that then allows us to proceed and actually analyse the DNA sample. Most laboratories around the world uh, interrogate the same parts of the DNA, so we call these uh, loci, it just means that a site on the DNA, and the PCR, this amplification process, targets those DNA sites. These are known to vary between individuals, so they're very important to help our ultimate goal, which is to answer the question, whose DNA is it? And these parts of the DNA are called short tandem repeats. And that's where the STR bit comes into the Starmix name. So we better spell that out for people, actually. So it's capital S, capital T, capital R, and then mix. That's right. It probably should be STR mix, but Starmix just sounds so much better. <laughs> Of course, you're obviously not trying to do a complete genome sequence of, of a person. So as you're saying, you're just trying to find something that will identify one individual from another individual. That's right. So most of the DNA between individuals is identical. So we're not interested uh, in identical DNA. We're interested in the bits that differ between individuals. And these short tandem repeats, uh, they are exactly what it, it sounds like. They are short sequence of DNA that are repeated tandemly. So if you can think of a carriage on a train, uh, and then what we're trying to do is count how many carriages there are on that train. And that tells us what the allele is for that particular locus within that particular person. So obviously if you've only got a profile from one person, then that's pretty simple. Where the challenge comes for you is we've got profiles from multiple people. So which bit comes from which person and how do you connect them up? Is that the challenge you face? That is the challenge, yeah. So there's a little bit more information that we can get from a DNA profile. So the very last step from within the laboratory is to run that amplified DNA through a very thin column called a capillary. And the, the longer pieces of DNA take longer to get through that capillary. So when they pop out the end of the capillary, we measure how much DNA there is and also the length. 
And when we have mixtures, it's typically in different proportions. So, for example, you might have more DNA in the sample than I do. So the amount of DNA corresponding to you would be higher than that from me. So we use those differences to be able to tease apart the different DNA profiles from the different contributors. Are you then getting the data that's been generated through this process? Is that a string of numbers that you inherit? That's right. The DNA profile just basically turns into a string of numbers. We can actually look at it uh, as a a picture. It's called an electropherogram, which is a series of of colourful peaks uh, on a plot, basically. So there are two dimensions. One is height, which is the amount of DNA, and one is length, which is the length of the DNA. Yeah, one of the first things you have to determine is the number of contributors, which is very easy if it's single source. It can get a little bit more complicated when there are multiple individuals. You've got all this, these numbers. You've got something that you use to look at graphically. And how do you make the software do the deciding and the decision-making for you? So the software is a, a, a combination of some standard statistical models and some complex biological models. And that's where the innovation came in from, from ESR. So we developed some uh, biological models which uh, we used to mimic the process of the, the PCR. So we're using a, a statistical method called Monte Carlo Markov Chain or Markov Chain Monte Carlo. And that, what that's doing is uh, working out all the possible genotype combinations that could explain that profile that we see from the crime sample. And then it's just trialling each of those millions of possible genotype combinations. And then at the end, it will return the more likely ones, and it will weight those according to how, how likely they are. OK, out of the lab, safety clothes off, and back to the office where Joe shows me something on a computer screen. This is not Starmix, but this is where we take the capillary electrophoresis data, so that's the instrument data, and we look at what the DNA profile is. So just describe to me what we're looking at. Okay, so we have two different colours here, and we have a blue channel and a green channel. Uh, DNA profiles, we, we normally look at four or five different channels of information. Each set of these is a locus. So here's our first locus, it's called D3, which means it's from the third chromosome. Um, it's what we call autosomal DNA, so it's not related to a sex uh, chromosome. And we can see that there are three peaks here. Uh, this one is a 15, so that would have been 15 of those short tandem repeats. This one's a 16, and this one's a 17. And so just looking at that locus, I can see that the 17 peak is a whole lot bigger than the 16, and the 15 is also very small. Uh, and I can tell that because of the differences in peak heights, there's probably two different uh, contributors to this DNA profile. And that's one locus, and we do this across 24 loci. So there's a lot of information within a DNA profile that we have to look at. Uh, Before the use of Starmix, we used to do this manually, and we would attempt to assign the individual profiles from the different contributors by hand. Uh, Basically, we would have a calculator and a pen, and we would work out the possible genotype combinations. Uh, And it was quite time-consuming, and we were really limited to the complexities of the profile. So if there were more than three contributors... That would be too complex. We just wouldn't even uh, attempt to interpret the profile. Whereas now, how many can you deal with? Up to five different contributors. We really have made a lot of advances with the amount of DNA that we can use from a crime sample, or from a crime scene even. 
Can you take that genetic information and match it back to DNA databases? That's one application of it. So there are really two outputs of, of StarMix. So the first would be if you had a person of interest, uh, say they were a suspect at a crime, you can calculate a match statistic. So what is the strength of that evidence for them being a contributor? Or you can just outright exclude them. The other application is if you didn't have a suspect, uh, you could search it then against a database. So it provides intelligence for the police for, for their crime solving. Just wander back over to my desk and then I can show you actually the StarMix software. This is version 2.6. We started with version 2.0 uh, and it's a very simple user interface. There are six possible applications within the software. By far, the one that we would use the most is called interpretation. Select interpret, and then it will open up one of three screens where I have to enter some information. So obviously the first would be a unique identifier for either the case or the sample. And it's just, in this case, I'll just do a known two-person mixture that we use as a test case. And the next step is to actually tell the software what chemistry you are using. So many of the laboratories around the world are using the same loci, but there are different commercial manufacturers creating these chemistries, these kits that amplify those loci. So I've just added in our, our DNA profile of interest. So that is really just a list of the alleles and the heights of those peaks. And uh, how I'm going to set up this interpretation is I'm going to say I have a suspect and I want to calculate a match statistic, it's called a likelihood ratio, and I want to determine uh, the strength of any match. So the Samix has uh, finished running now. Uh, we can see that that two-person mixture took a minute and a half. Uh, and this is the report that you would print off and that you would add to your case file. So this becomes a document uh, that... Uh, could be offered in disclosure for the defence or the prosecution uh, and is what the scientists would take to court to report that, that statistic, that likelihood ratio. And I can see looking at what we call the mixture proportions that uh, it was approximately 80% major contributor and then 20% from the minor. And then we have the likelihood ratio. Uh, and this is a smorgasbord, if you like, of likelihood ratios. So when we are... Forming a likelihood ratio, we have two propositions. Uh, and they typically align with the prosecutor and the defence case. So the prosecutor or the prosecution proposition would be that the DNA in this profile has originated from that suspect. And of course, a, a good defence proposition would be, no, the DNA has originated from someone else in the population. And the likelihood ratio is just a ratio of those two probabilities. And because we are analysing up to 24 loci, these numbers can get pretty big. So here we go, the likelihood ratio, considering an unrelated individual uh, as our alternate proposition, is 4 times 10 to the 22. So that's 4 with 22 zeros after it. <laughs> <laughs> 22 zeros is a lot. That, so, yeah, it's a, bit, it's a big number. Uh, and when we report this in court, we would traditionally follow it up with what we call a verbal scale. Uh, so any likelihood ratio greater than a million, we would say that provides extremely strong support for this particular person being a contributor. So you've said it's quite widespread in use overseas. Whereabouts does it get used? 
Uh, so currently there are f- over 40 laboratories in the US that are using StarMix. I think there are three laboratories in Canada that are, that are using it. A number of laboratories in the UK uh, and then some in Europe, uh, including uh, Ireland uh, and the Swiss laboratory. Uh, and then uh, more recently, uh, Hong Kong, some laboratories in China are currently validating and it's obviously the standard thing here in New Zealand? Yes, yeah, so it's the Australasian standard now. So all eight state and territory laboratories in Australia and New Zealand are using Starmix. Thanks, Joe. That was ESR scientist Joanne Bright, team leader of the Starmix team, which has won the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Prize. And we also heard from team member Ming Han Lin, and the StarMix team will be using their half a million dollars prize money to further develop the crime-busting software package. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, climate scientist James Renwick from Victoria University of Wellington is a familiar voice in the media talking about climate change, and that public outreach has earned him the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. He says that the science, showing that it is us humans causing rapid global warming, is undeniable. The science has been well known for a very long time. Actually, it's 40 years ago this year, there was a very famous report put out by the National Academy of Sciences in the US, the so-called Charney Report Actually, I've got a copy on my shelf over there. It's a very slim volume. It's 20-odd pages of text written over the course of a week or so, and it summarised what we know about climate change in broad terms extremely well, and the basic science hasn't changed for at least 40 years. And the really basic science about how greenhouse gases affect the climate has been well known for over a century. So... There's nothing too new in climate science. We know a lot more detail now, but the basic drivers have never been in question for, well, more than my lifetime. But despite all this scientific Mm. certainty, there's still been a lot of people out there who deny it, who go, nah, it's not us. That's right, and that's a really interesting uh, social science problem, you might say. And the reality is a lot of the disagreement and denial around climate change has been orchestrated. It's, it's very well documented now that especially oil companies, fossil fuel companies, have funded disinformation. So are you as a scientist doing anything to try and counter that? I'm active in putting forward the science and explaining what's really going on. I personally haven't gone after particular people who deny the science, although... I was involved in a small way in the the court case that Niwa was uh, involved in a few years ago where a group called the Climate Science uh, Education Trust here in New Zealand claimed that Niwa was fudging the numbers around New Zealand temperatures and of course that was silly, it was rubbish and uh, it was thrown out of court after a lot of toing and froing. It did lead to a really careful re analysis of all of the temperature data used in New Zealand and we have a much stronger case now that temperatures are indeed going up and we've had a degree or so of warming in New Zealand in the last century. We know that very, very well. So being involved in that case, perhaps you could say that's a contribution I've made to directly 
fighting the denial campaign. And of course I get a lot of emails from individuals who like to argue with me about the science, so I try to respond to all of those. But apart from that, really, I see my role as just to get out there and put what we know of the science across in ways that hopefully people can understand. So basically you do that by talking to whoever invites you to talk to them? Yes, <laughs> that's pretty much it. I am asked to, to speak often these days, both to public groups like rotary clubs or school groups, that kind of thing. But um, also, yeah, I'm, I'm interviewed uh, in the media quite a lot. So you come across a lot of ordinary citizens then. What are the kinds of things they're saying to you? What are their concerns? Yeah, I, I, I haven't struck a lot of pushback, you might say. The audiences I've spoken to are concerned. It's always, what can I do? What do I as an individual citizen do to help fight climate change, to help stop the climate from changing? So there's a lot of desire out in the public to take action, to be motivated. So my conversations with audiences after giving some presentation on the science of climate change is usually around what action you can now take. And the first thing I always tell people is to to talk, to make sure that the members of your family, your workplace, your neighbourhood uh, and your political representatives, you know, local government and central government know that you understand this is an issue and you really need to see action taken. So the more people who understand the problem and the more people who feel motivated to to make a noise about the problem, the better. So I think that's, that's a good practical action everybody can take. And I also talk about um, how we can all live lower carbon lifestyles with electric vehicles and public transport and all of those things, which is great, but... Really, we need changes in the way our economies and societies operate, and that's, that's about governments, really, incentivising moves to renewable energy, renewably powered transport, electric cars, and so on and so forth, planting lots of trees, some of the things the government are now doing. But it's that conversation with the public that I tend to have most often, not so much the science, but how we react to it and how we can make the future better, how we can make our communities more resilient. What is winning the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize going to do? It comes with some money? (laughs) Yes, it does. It comes with a pretty substantial prize. So there's $50,000 to go towards furthering my science communication activities. And one of the things I've got involved in over the last year or so is with the Track Zero Trust is looking at how the arts and the sciences can work together to tell stories about climate change. Uh, We all know that the facts are pretty boring, actually, even though they're kind of striking and frightening. Graphs and numbers don't really do it for a lot of people. It's stories that connect with the emotions. You know, It's really touching the heart rather than the head that actually gets people on board and gets people motivated. So I've thought for a long time that artistic expression, whether that's a story, a song, painting, a dance, whatever, those are the things that we connect with because they tell stories. So I've, I've often thought it would be great to join up with arts practitioners and see where we can go with expressing some of the science. So I was approached a year or two ago 
by Sarah Meads, who runs the Track Zero Trust, about getting involved in this thing, and it struck me as really exciting. So, so that happened, and that's been a, a component of my proposal for what I would do with this funding, partly to support the, the goals of the Trust and partly to further that kind of activity. So I'm thinking of running a workshop where we bring scientists and artists together and have a kind of a a speed dating thing, I suppose you might say, where we aim to create partnerships so we can use the science to inform the art and the art to inform the science. So I have a couple of other ideas. We'll just have to see how we go with the first steps with this, but um, that's the general area I'm planning on using the prize money for. When it comes to climate change and when it comes to the size and the speed with which we as a world need to respond to rein it in, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic? I'd have to say I don't feel either. I think optimism's a bit strong. Things are already changing and the future is bound to be at least a little worse in terms of climate extremes than it is now. But I I would say I feel determined. I think we have the the technology. We know what to do. It is still possible to stop global warming at one and a half degrees or, if not that, maybe not much beyond that. But it does require leadership and it does require courage. Governments have to step forward especially and say this is the absolute priority and here's what we're doing. And... Societies, countries can be mobilised to make big changes in in a hurry, provided they feel the urgency and the need to do it. So I'm optimistic about that coming to the fore in the next few years, but I do appreciate it as a huge problem and a huge ask, so we have to be realistic about what's going to happen. The way I see it, my contribution so far and and into the future is just to keep spreading the word, to keep talking about the problem as well as helping to facilitate some of the research on the climate system. I have taken on a role of a communicator in this area so I'm I'm very happy to do that. I'm always ready to talk about (laughs) climate change at any barbecue and I think it is a really important thing to do. It's one of the most important things for anyone to do is to talk about this issue because Whenever there's a problem, talking about it is always good. Spreading the word and getting ideas from as many people as possible is definitely a way to get on top of this issue, like, like any other. So yes, definitely, I will keep talking. Thanks, James. That was climate scientist James Renwick from Victoria University of Wellington and winner of the 2018 Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. The 2018 Prime Minister's Future Scientist Prize winner, physicist Finnegan Messerly, is the third Onslow College student in 10 years to win this award. He explains what he had to do to enter. Basically you have to put together some sort of massive folder or report sort of thing that includes basically everything you've done over the past year. So my project was measuring the material properties of granular materials, that sort of like corn or sand, that sort of thing. And it's a lot harder than you might think, so I spent quite a while figuring out ways to do that. So I gather this is to do with that thing of when you, if you pour a pile of sand, for instance, it forms a cone shape on the ground. Yeah, so that was sort of the beginning of my investigation. That's where I started. And so what I wanted to do was to be able to simulate that. But it turns out you can't do that without knowing everything about the grain. And so then I sort of morphed my project into figuring out how can we actually find out 
everything about that grain. So how did you go about doing that? So I used a bunch of different methods. Essentially what I had to do to start with was do a ton of research to find out sort of what methods were out there. And I noticed like a bunch of common problems with those methods. So often it required really specialist equipment. And so I tried to find ways around that, developing my own experiments. So what kind of experiments did you end up doing? So one was that cone pile you're talking about. So it turns out that the angle that a pile of grains makes with the ground, that angle is dependent only on the rolling friction and the friction of the grains. So you can sort of do that experiment and then run some simulations and sort of work backwards to figure out what those frictions are. So what kind of grains were you working with? I worked mainly with uh, actually a bunch of different ones. So I used salt was really good because you can get different sizes. I used sand grains, plastic beads and some agricultural grains. And these all had their own particular characteristics that were really different for your model? Yes, exactly. Did you manage to succeed in coming up with a good model? Partially. uh, It's definitely a work in progress at the moment. So there are certain properties that I was able to predict really well and other ones that I had a bit more difficulty with, so I was still working on that one. So is this one of those physics problems that has real-world applications? Oh, absolutely. So simulation is really useful for everything from avalanches to grain movement, so storing grains as well. And so being able to simulate that before you do any experiments is like a really useful tool, but you can't do any simulations unless you know the properties of the grains. So you notice in all the papers that you read that everyone's having the same problems and everyone's coming up with their own solutions. So I sort of came up with a solution that was focusing on being really easy to use and also really valid. Now you did this physics project in your last year at Onslow College. Yep, that's true. So tell me a little bit about studying physics at Onslow and about your physics teacher. Studying physics at Onslow is really, really good, particularly if you get involved with the stuff that Kent Hogan does. So he runs essentially science tournaments, physics tournaments. And if you get involved with those really early, you learn basically all the skills you need for science. So you learn how to debate, you learn how to pick holes in your own sort of investigations as well as others, and how to just do science yourself. So I got pretty lucky with that. So I've been to all sorts of different tournaments, and that sort of taught me the skills that I needed to do this investigation. Well done, Finnegan Messerly, winner of the 2018 Prime Minister's Future Scientist Prize. Finn is now at Victoria University studying maths and physics, and his Onslow College teacher, Kent Hogan, also deserves a big shout-out for mentoring three winners of this award. The 2018 Prime Minister's Science Teacher Prize has gone to Carol Breesman of Hampton Hill Primary School, while the 2018 Prime Minister's Emerging Scientist Prize was awarded to University of Auckland bioengineer Peng Du. Ping has been on Our Changing World before, talking about his devices that detect electrical activity in the gut. You can find his interview as well as longer versions of all tonight's interviews at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world. The Elemental podcast, celebrating 150 years of the periodic table, has two new episodes this week, Arsenic and Astatine. I'll post those and the latest episode of the Kakapo Files podcast on rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld as well. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō.